Welcome to Human Rights Matters, where we discuss matters of human rights because your rights matter. Today we're discussing an issue that's made national headlines, which is the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia. My name is Moya B. I'm COO at Ares Human Rights International. Joining me today is Dr. Reginald Frection, President and CEO at Ares Human Rights International. Dr. Frection, welcome. Thank Tell you. us a bit about Ares. Ares Human Rights International is a nonprofit organization focused on providing advice, education, and awareness to migrant workers but all vulnerable uh, groups and individuals. What is your background and how does it assist you in analyzing the issues concerning this case? Well, we have an extensive uh, background in law enforcement and in particular uh, criminal investigations. I served as a drug investigator while I was assigned to the U.S. Army in uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, working at the Army CID. And then spent 11 years with the Prince George's County Police Department uh, just outside Washington, D.C. Uh, the county police is a 24-7 full-service aid agency, and I believe it's the 47th largest department in the country out of about 18,000. Um, while there, I spend the majority of my time as a robber detective working in the Criminal Investigation Division. I also have a bachelor's in sociology with uh, emphasis on criminal justice a master's in management and leadership, which was focused on police department uh, management. And I have a PhD in law from uh, the University of York Center for Applied Human Rights. And my focus was on the obligations of governments and their responsibility to protect the poor, disadvantaged and vulnerable groups. Already from a human rights perspective, what is this case about? I think ultimately this case is about a violation of uh, individual rights that are guaranteed to us under a, a constitution, a right to life. And since Ahmad isn't here, it falls on his family and the community to demand a response from the government to determine the facts of the case and to determine who ultimately bears responsibility for his death. Tell me, what do we know so far? Well, what we know is that on February the 23rd, um, shortly after 1.15 p.m., um, Ahmad Aubrey, um, he was a 25-year-old uh, former football um, player. Um, he was shot and killed after being chased by two uh, men, Gregory McMichael, um, who is 64, and his son, Travis McMichael, age 34. The shooting took place in the suburban Georgia neighborhood of Satilla Shores. And Ahmad was living with his mother about two miles away outside the city of uh, Brunswick, Georgia. Now, according to the police report, Ahmad was running in Satilla Shore's neighborhood when Gregory McMichael, who was standing in his front yard, saw him go by. Gregory McMichael uh, thought Ahmad looked like a man who had been caught on previously recorded video and was suspected of several break-ins in the area. He called to his son, Travis McMichael, to get his gun. Gregory McMichael grabbed a uh, 357 um, handgun and Travis McMichael took a shotgun and the two men got into the pickup truck and chased Ahmad, trying to cut him off. A third man was also involved in the pursuit according to the police report and according uh, to Gregory McMichael, uh, he stated that during the chase, they yelled to Ahmad to stop, uh, we want to talk to you. They then pulled up to Ahmad and Travis McMichael got out of the truck with the shotgun. 
Uh, Gregory further states that Ahmad began to violently attack Travis, and the two men then started fighting over the shotgun, at which point Travis fired a shot, and then a second later, uh, there was a second shot. Uh, the police uh, report and other documents do not indicate that Ahmad was armed at all. Now, prior to the incident, uh, prior to the shooting, at around 1.08 p.m., um, a neighbor uh, called the dispatcher, the police dispatcher, and told her that a man was inside a house under construction. And in the, in the call, the unidentified male says, there's a guy in the house right now, a house under construction. The dispatcher asks, is the man breaking into the property? Uh, to which the caller responds, no, it's all open, it's under construction. The caller then says he's running right now, there he goes. The dispatcher then asks, okay, but what is he doing? And the caller replies, running down the street. There's a second call that comes in around 1.14 p.m. And the caller, um, which I believe is Gregory McMichael, um, says to the dispatcher, um, there's a man, uh, there's a man running in Satilla Shores. There's a black male running down the street. The dispatcher attempts to get more information. And at that point, the caller can be heard yelling, wait, st stop, what's that? Damn it, stop, Travis. And then there's no uh, further response from the caller. At this point, we understand Ahmad was shot and killed during this confrontation. What else do we know? Yes, well, according to um, at least one report from CNN, um, we know that uh, Aubrey's mother, um, Ahmad's mother, stated that when the police notified her of her son's death, she was told that her son was involved in a burglary and that there was a confrontation between her son and the homeowner and a struggle over a gun. She said she never worried about him, you know, jogging because she said he was never bothering anyone. Ahmad's friends and family said he liked to stay in good shape and he was out often jogging around the neighborhood. Now, on February the 27th, um, the district attorney for the Brunswick Judicial District, Jackie Johnson, recused herself from the case because Gregory McMichael, was a former, uh, who was a former police officer, had worked in her office as an investigator. The case was then um, sent to George Barnhill, the district attorney for Waycross, Georgia, who eventually recused himself from the case on April 6th after Ahmad's mother argued that he had a conflict of interest because his son had also worked for the Brunswick district attorney where Gregory McMichael had worked. But before um, Barnhill relinquished the case, he argued in a letter that was dated you know, April the 3rd that there was insufficient probable cause to arrest Ahmad's pursuers. In the letter, Barnhill noted that the McMichaels were legally carrying their firearms under Georgia's open carry law. He said the pursuers were within their rights to pursue what he called a burglary suspect and cited a state law that states, a private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. Barnhill also argued that if Ahmad attacked Travis McMichael, McMichael was allowed to use deadly force to protect himself under Georgia law. Now, on April 13th, the case was then assigned to Tom Durden, the district attorney for the Atlantic uh, Judicial Circuit. In a news conference on the 5th of May, Durden said that he expects to present the case to the next available grand jury in Glynn County to consider whether charges are warranted uh, for those involved in Ahmad's death. But because of the coronavirus pandemic, the courts were currently prohibited from impaneling juries. Later that day, on the 5th, 
again of May, a video of the encounter, which was filmed through a vehicle operated by a William Bryant, who is referred to as Roddy in the initial police report, appears to show something quite different than the police report. Uh, from the video, um, as the vehicle turns a bend in the road, Ahmad wearing a white shirt can be seen running. A white pickup truck is waiting at the intersection of Holmes Road and Satilla Drive, blocking his path. Travis McMichael is in the street next to the driver's side of the pickup, and Gregory McMichael is standing in the flatbed of the truck. The video is blocked off the subject for a moment, and when the video shows Ahmad trying to run around the truck on the passenger side, Travis McMichael now moves from the driver's side door to the front of the pickup truck in an attempt to cut off Ahmad. Ahmad engages with Travis and there's a, a gunshot. Ahmad and Travis are engaged in a struggle and move off the road into a driveway and out of frame of the uh, video. A second gunshot is heard. And Gregory McMichael, who is in the bed of the pickup truck, appears to be on his cell phone and still in the pickup. As Ahmad and Travis reappear in the video frame, Gregory McMichael is now pointing his handgun in the direction of his son and Ahmad. There's a third gunshot. Travis maintains possession of the shotgun and steps back from Ahmad. Ahmad takes a few steps and collapses face down on the pavement. Um, what, in addition, what else has happened since the video has aired? Well, since that initial video um, was aired, there's additional video that has emerged. Um, it's believed to show the moments before um, Ahmad's death. And several other videos show an individual in the property uh, dating as far back as October 2019. Ahmad's family have stated that the individual in the other videos isn't Ahmad. But Larry English, the owner of the house that is under construction, uh, told the Washington Post that the structure was not burglarized, he had never filed a police report, and had nothing ever stolen from the property or any kind of robbery. Now, according to news reports uh, from Glynn County, uh, police investigators sought the advice of the district attorney, Jackie Johnson's office, the day of the shooting, as they believed there was enough probable cause to arrest uh, the McMichaels. According to reports, officials in the prosecutor's office told the investigators that the McMichaels were deemed not to be flight risks, and officers were advised by the district attorney's office that no arrest was necessary at the time. In a statement from the Johnson's um, office, said, um, Assistant District Attorneys, when contacted by Glynn County investigators after the killing, immediately cited a conflict of interest and stated that their office could not be involved. At no time on February 23rd did District Attorney Jackie Johnson have any conversation with any Glynn County police officer in this case. Further, no district attorney in the office directed the Glynn County police officer not to make an arrest. And that was her statement. Now, uh, District Attorney George Barnhill Sr. advised the detectives uh, before noon on February 24th, uh, 24 hours approximately after the shooting, that the shooting was justifiable homicide and the detectives should continue their investigation and provide any lab reports and any additional information. It appears, uh, he says that the McMichaels, it appears that their intent was to stop and hold this criminal suspect until law enforcement arrived. Uh, under Georgia law, this is perfectly legal. Now, Barnhill received a copy of the autopsy report on April 1st and withdrew from the probe on April 6th because, again, his son is a prosecutor in the Brunswick District Attorney's Office where Gregory McMichael worked. The case was then um, 
shifted to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation um, later on uh, the day of May the 5th. And on May the 7th, almost 36 hours after being transferred to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, they announced the arrest of uh, Travis and Gregory McMichael and charged them with murder and aggravated assault. And further, as part of the continuing probe into Ahmad's death, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation is also looking into William Bryant, um, also known as Roddy, uh, mentioned in the incident report. And Bryant is the man that recorded Ahmad's fatal shooting. Now, Bryant's attorney, Kevin Goh, released a statement that his client had done nothing wrong. Goh said his client was responding to what he saw, which was someone in the community he didn't know being followed by a vehicle he recognized. Tell us, how does human rights show up in a shooting incident such as this? Well, human rights violations and, you know, a lack of um, avenues of redress, uh, they don't happen in a vacuum. They're usually precursors and often so small that they go unnoticed. Um, sometimes they're a result of social and cultural barriers, such as discrimination, um, limited political influence from members in the community or socioeconomic subordination. They can also be attributed to institutional barriers, such as the lack of diligence in recognizing right holders or inappropriate or ineffective laws that fail to properly protect citizens or inaccuracy in recording complaints either because of lack of awareness and training or corruption. Now these inaccuracies disproportionately affect poor, vulnerable and disadvantaged groups and individuals. The resulting effect is impunity for perpetrators in contrast to um, victims who are disregarded or mistreated. Now, human rights barriers also show up in uh, structural barriers where law enforcement, courts, government personnel reflect prejudices of the wider society and at times not adequately trained or informed to conduct the government's business without imposing these discriminatory attitudes towards people of lesser social or economic means. A lack of transparency may undermine the credibility of the entire uh, criminal justice process. And this lack of transparency provides gaps that foster claims of corruption and preferential treatment by the authorities. Uh, research has shown in instances where the victim or the victim's families are kept informed and believe that all is being done to address their complaint, the process is deemed to be fair and outcomes are accepted even if a different one was desired. How do these barriers show up in this case and how do we assign responsibility? Well, these barriers show up you know, in, in many ways. You know, we look at um, separate issues um, that form part of this tragic episode. We can examine you know, the Georgia statutes that give um, citizens um, uh, the power to arrest uh, would-be suspects. Um, we can look at members of the community who, through discrimination or prejudice, um, that initiated the calls on February 23rd. We can also look at the law enforcement apparatus that includes the police and the district attorneys and how they handle the case. And also on the positive side, you know, members of the community who cried out for justice uh, to be done in the name of uh, Ahmad. How do we determine um, responsibility? Well, when I look at uh, instances like this, I ask three questions to determine responsibility. The first is, was there an alternative? Was there an alternative to the act that was committed? The second thing is, did the person committing the act know right from wrong? 
And the third question is, if they didn't know right from wrong, did they have a duty to know? When we look at the barriers that we, I mentioned earlier, the first we can look at is the Georgia statute. And again, the statute that covers uh, arrest by citizens, it states that a private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. And if the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. The second statute that uh, is being relied upon um, when uh, Ahmad is you know, viewed as a burglary suspect is the Georgia burglary statute and it covers dwellings and a dwelling can be any building or structure or portion which is designed or intended for occupancy for residential use. Now the statute says that a person commits the offense of burglary in the first degree when without authority and with the intent to commit a felony or theft therein, he or she enters or remains within an occupied or unoccupied or vacant dwelling. And the person is guilty of, if found guilty of uh, burglary in the first degree, would be liable to not less than one year and no more than 20 years. And for a burglary in the second degree, it's the same criteria but the punishment would be for not less than one year and no more than five years. So when we look at the calls uh, uh, into the police, what was the basis for the call? The assumption was that Ahmad was there for some nefarious purpose, that he was a burglar. The evidence and related videos of the owner's statements show that this assumption was misplaced. The owner stated that nothing was ever stolen. He had never made a report of any thefts and his premises were never robbed. So what other evidence was there for the assumption that Ahmad was a burglar other than who he was and he didn't belong in the neighborhood? Now, the initial callers uh, chose an alternative to confronting um, Ahmad. So in the calls to police, the callers initiated the alternative response. Though the, the suspicions may have been misplaced based on assumptions, they made a decision to call the police who were better equipped to investigate these matters through training in the appropriate laws and investigative procedures and certification by a competent authority that they had met the established standards to act on behalf of the government. Now, in contrast, the McMichaels chose to assume the role of the police and make a citizen's arrest, and their actions resulted in the death of a citizen. In looking at their actions, and determining responsibility, they did not choose an alternative option. They could have called the police and waited, or they could have simply left him alone. They stated that they were in their front yard when they saw Ahmad running. Therefore, they did not witness any felony, nor did they have any first-hand knowledge of any crime as required by the citizen arrest statute. They indicated that days prior, they had seen Ahmad put his hand on his pants and thought he was armed. Uh, this is, uh, raises a red flag for me because since Georgia is an open carry state where citizens are allowed to carry uh, weapons, why would this alarm the McMichaels if Georgia is a state that allows you to be armed? Correct. So under the burglary statute, the action described, I believe, is insufficient to make a case of burglary. There's one operative word in the burglary statute, which is intent. There must have been an intent to commit a felony or theft. Again, Despite the available videos of Ahmad at the property, 
There was never a report of anything stolen or damaged uh, per the owner. It is difficult to find that there's any intent to commit a felony or theft since there was ample opportunity to take something, yet nothing was ever taken. The outcome of the McMichael's actions proved a penalty even far greater than punishment that would have been dealt under the law. Now, did the Michaels know that their actions were wrong? I mean, we don't know at this point. But did they have a duty to know? I think the answer is yes. If a citizen decides to initiate a citizen arrest, they have a duty to know the law and the level of force they are allowed to use to detain a suspected perpetrator. And I use the word detain because citizens have no powers of arrest, and I think, therefore, that this statute is a little bit misleading. Okay, I understand. In your opinion, what would be the important functions of the law enforcement apparatus in this case? I think there should be, there's two important um, obligations, I would say, of the law enforcement apparatus. One is there's an obligation to conduct an effective investigation. And the other is, based on that investigation, there's an obligation to prosecute. Well, explain to us, what is the obligation to investigate? Well, the criminal justice system, which includes the police, the prosecutors and the courts, um, operate as independent and impartial bodies and have an obligation to investigate all allegations uh, promptly, thoroughly, and effectively. The effective administration of justice cannot be realized if the steps to seriously investigate the killing of Ahmad are not taken. Justice cannot be effectively guaranteed when the authorities do not investigate right violations, deliberately skew the investigation, or conceal the facts. The right to know the truth about all the facts surrounding a violation of rights is a critical element in the pursuit of justice and eventually the prosecution and punishment of those responsible. This obligation is derived from the, the state's duty to protect all individuals in their jurisdiction from acts committed by private people who prevent the enjoyment of constitutional rights. You know, the duty to investigate is one of conduct and not of result. This means that the duty is not necessarily breached if the investigation does not lead to the complete determination of all the facts or leads to the arrest of a suspect, as long as the authorities carry out the investigation in a diligent manner. But what, what does that mean? It means that the investigation must be prompt, impartial, thorough and independent and is not dependent on the victim or the victim's family having to protest or launch a complaint. An independent investigation requires that it be carried out by an independent authority, an authority not involved in the alleged violations. Now impartiality presupposes a lack of preconceived ideas and prejudice by those who carry out the investigation. When investigating violent incidents, authorities have the additional duty to take all responsible steps to determine any racist motive and to establish whether or not ethnic hatred or prejudice may have played a role in the event. Failing to do so and treating racially induced violence and brutality on an equal footing with other cases that have no racist overtones would be to turn a blind eye to the specific nature of acts that are particularly destructive to fundamental rights. The investigation should be capable of identifying those responsible for the violation. The fact that the investigation uh, must lead, if appropriate, to the prosecution and uh, punishment of the perpetrators also means that the investigating report 
must be disclosed to the judicial authorities without manipulation. The investigation must be public and victims and their families must have access to them. Victims and their families must be involved in the procedure to the extent necessary to safeguard his rights or her legitimate interests. Decisions not to prosecute must be publicly reasoned and notice must be given to the families. And lastly, an effective investigation requires that all the evidence be gathered and documented. Um, Dr. Fraction, tell us a little bit about the obligation to prosecute. Well, the obligation to prosecute um, also carries a, a burden to punish um, when those found responsible. And it is intrinsically related to the right to justice and the duty of the state to address impunity that promotes recidivism. Impunity is a total lack of investigation, prosecution, capture, trial, and conviction of those responsible for violations of all rights. The obligation to prosecute provides the opportunity for the courts, through their judgments, not only to decide those cases that are brought before it, but to safeguard and develop effective protection measures. What are some of the issues you have focused on in your analysis of the video and other reports? So going through the, the, the case and looking at the video and some of the other reports, I think I take issue or some issue with the accuracy of the police reports, the district attorneys, at least the first two, the district attorney for Glynn County and the district attorney, uh, George Barnhill. Um, I'm going to start with the police um, um, that I see inaccuracies in their statement. So the initial police report, um, I believe, has some gaps. I would have wanted to see filled. The report indicates that Travis McMichael had blood on his hands and that the explanation given by Gregory McMichael was that Travis rolled Ahmad over to check if he had a gun. The report never states whether Ahmad was in possession of a gun or whether the McMichaels claimed that he had been armed. The video, which the police reviewed at the scene with William Bryant, uh, who recorded it, does not show Ahmad carrying anything. Secondly, the report does not give the specific location of the incident. It lists uh, 219 Satilla Drive as the location of the homicide, but the shooting occurs at the intersection of Satilla and Holmes Drive. And from the video that has been widely circulated, it appears that William Bryant is following Ahmad on Holmes Drive and the McMichaels are waiting at the corner of Holmes and Satilla. I think this is important because Brian indicated that he was in his yard when he noticed someone he did not know being followed by the McMichaels. Gregory McMichael stated that the police, in the police report that he followed Ahmad down Satilla Drive and onto Buford Drive. This apparently where Mr. Bryant, who was in his front yard, noticed them. So Gregory McMichael further stated that Mr. Bryant, whom he referred to as Roddy, tried to cut off Ahmad. Mr. Bryant said that he wasn't involved in a chase of Ahmad and, was, and has not yet explained why he followed and videotaped the incident. It could be interesting to hear what were the circumstances that caused Mr. Bryant to be the only vehicle following Ahmad when he's confronted by the McMichaels who are laying in wait in their pickup at the fateful intersection. At the moment, the McMichaels were not chasing Ahmad but waiting. And as he emerged around the bend within their grasp, Mr. Bryant has not been charged with any offenses at this time. 
Now, there has been reports that the police investigators felt that there was enough evidence at the scene to make an arrest, at least of Travis McMichael. He is listed as a suspect of the incident report, and later of Gregory McMichael as well. Uh, the report claims that the district attorney of Glynn County told them that there was no need at the time as the McMichaels were not a flight risk. It took 74 days for the McMichaels to be arrested by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, 36 hours after receiving the case. This is troubling because it signifies that the Glynn County Police did have the necessary probable cause to arrest. Also troubling is the reluctance of the inability to execute the powers granted to the police without concurrence from the district attorney. As a matter of fact, the second attorney, George Barnhill, spoke to the investigators before noon on the day after the shooting. At this time, went a bit further and told the investigators that they did not have the necessary cause to arrest the McMichaels as they were justified in their actions. The police and prosecutor should have a close working relationship. But where does the independence of the police to conduct thorough investigation and make the decision to arrest end? Do you have concerns regarding the district attorney's handling of this case? I do, to some extent. Um, the first district attorney, Jackie Johnson, again, according to the news reports from Glynn County police investigators, they sought advice from her office uh, on the day of the shooting, and they believed they had enough probable cause to arrest. According to the reports, officials in the prosecutor's office told the McMichaels were deemed not to be flight risks, and officers were advised uh, not to arrest. Again, in a statement from Johnson's office, um, assistant district attorneys, uh, when contacted by the Glynn County investigators after the killing, cited a conflict of interest and stated that they could not be involved. The question uh, for Ms. Johnson is, when was your office notified, if not on February 23rd, when the shooting occurred? District Attorney Barnhill was speaking to Glynn County investigators on February the 24th but you didn't recuse yourself until February 27th. If you were not notified on the 23rd and you decided immediately upon notification that your office could not be involved in the case, what happened between February 23rd to 27th? And why was DA Barnhill speaking to investigators on the morning of February the 24th about a case in your jurisdiction? I would also have questions for you know, District Attorney George Barnhill. Now, George Barnhill advised the detectives before noon on the 24th that the shooting was justifiable homicide and for detectives to continue their investigation. From my analysis, it appears that uh, George Barnhill um, received a copy of the autopsy report on April the 1st, and then he withdrew from their case on April the 6th because his son, again, had worked for the um, Brunswick uh, DA's office. Now, it appears that Barnhill's application of the citizen's arrest law is flawed because the statute requires that the offense be committed in the presence or under reasonable grounds of suspicion if the crime is a felony. Furthermore, Barnhill decided on February 24th that the McMichaels were justified in their actions. He did not recuse himself until April 6th, but on April 3rd, he released a statement officially announcing his interpretation of the law and a determination that the McMichaels were justified. The main reason for recusal is that there is an admission of some biased point of view and a lack of objectivity. So why would Barnhill inject himself into a case that he could not objectively pursue? 
Obviously, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation disagreed with DA Barnhill's assessment. I can only assume that DA Barnhill is a competent district attorney. So his reasoning is at least misleading or at worst corrupt. His statement after his recusal appears to have been intended to thwart the arrest and prosecution of the McMichaels. How important is an outcry for justice from the community? I think that must have been the most important part of this case moving forward. Um, members of the community, um, it took continued pressure from Ahmad's family and community members and the release of the video showing the tragic killing of Ahmad to force another step towards determining whether the killing of Ahmad was justified or not. I mean, for 74 days, who was speaking for Ahmad? It seems like there was a rush to pick a side and for all intents and purposes that the McMichaels were justified in their actions. I mean, it's understandable that after 74 days, why segments of the community fear that the justice system may not work for them, that there's a double standard in how the law is applied and the inequity in how it is enforced. Sometimes it takes the people within a community to pressure their elected officials to hear their complaints and to address them. I hope that the process from this point forward is transparent and fair um, for the uh, community and for the Arbery family. Dr. Fraction, what do you see as the long-term human rights implications based on the outcome of the judicial process in this case? I mean, that's a difficult uh, question to answer. Obviously, the criminal justice system, it's always hard to predict what the outcome uh, would be. And again, this process is about conduct rather than outcome. And again, if people believe that the investigation, the prosecution is transparent, it's done with impartiality, and it appears to be fair, they are willing to accept the outcome even if it is not the one that they initially um, wanted. Um, so it's more about ensuring equality and enforcing the rule of law. Dr. Fraction, thank you so much for your contribution. Listeners, thank you for joining us at Human Rights Matters, where we discuss matters of human rights, because your rights matter. Remember to follow us on Facebook at Ares Human Rights International, and visit the website, erisint.org. Thank you.